0: A very uh, good evening to everyone. It is a joy and a pleasure for me to be here. As has been said, my name is Tapelumpai and I'm co-pastor of Bursley Baptist Church. I'm sure you know my friend Nico Fonseil who's my co-pastor there. And we also work together here at the APC. We are very grateful for the friendship of this church with uh, Pastor Ivor as well. We are very grateful as a church Especially because we also have our APC offices here and we feel, we feel very loved and welcomed by the community of this church and I hope that you know that we, especially Baptist Church, love you as well. I'm a husband of one and father of one. Unfortunately, they could not be with you today. My wife's name is Grace and my daughter's name is Moronga, who will be turning five sometime in May. And by God's grace, we'll be uh, doing seven years of marriage uh, uh, sometime in March, on the 28th of March. So we thank God for that grace. Nonetheless, I thank you for uh, inviting me to share God's word with you. Uh, Please turn your Bibles with me uh, to Daniel chapter 7. It's a very long passage, but I feel like it's very important that we read it because it's very important for the message that I have to share with us this evening. Uh, Daniel chapter 9. Chapter 7, sorry. Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to pray and then I will read and then we'll get into God's word for us this evening. Let's pray together. Oh Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, have we, as we have sung uh, these songs this evening, just reflecting of Your holiness and Your greatness and your great love for us, Father. We are full of gratitude and mercy. Uh, We are thankful that we can gather together this evening in your presence to worship together, to fellowship with one another. Uh, We are thankful, Lord, that it is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that has brought us together. And we pray that we have a wonderful sense of your presence with us this evening. We pray for the word. We pray that it will speak to us in our circumstances. It will encourage us to more faithfulness. It will encourage us to more holiness. And more love towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that even as I preach that I may not lean on my own understanding. But trust wholly in the help that comes from the Holy Spirit. And I pray that both hearer and preacher I helped. uh, The church of Christ edified in Jesus Christ and him alone glorified. In Jesus name, amen. Daniel chapter 7. It's a very long passage so please bear with me. Hear the word of the Lord. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked... Thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its heels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And a thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked because then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burnt with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom and, and that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are the four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saint of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than the com- its companions, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus, he said, as for the fourth beast... There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the other kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the most high and shall wear out the saints of the most high and and shall think to change the times and the law and shall be given And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away and be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom... And dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter to my heart. This is the word of the Lord. So the title of the message I have this evening is titled, The Beasts, the Son of Man, and the Kingdom." It has become clear that in recent years that the Christian faith in much of the world, where it was previously dominant, is not, no longer has the influence or social capital that it had, uh, let's say, some 10, 20, 30 years ago. By this, I mean that there is no longer any incentive from a social and cultural perspective for people to identify and associate themselves with the Christian faith, even from a nominal standpoint. This, of course, is happening in parts of the world that have uh, Western religious and and cultural influences like South Africa. Because we know that in other parts of the world, in places like uh, East Asia and the Middle East, Christianity has uh, has not always had the same social capital as it has in the West, um, where Christianity has been dominant. So it is clear that from the point of view of influence and cultural currency, Christianity in South Africa and in other parts of the Western world is losing its social advantage. In other words, people do not want to associate with Christianity because it does not give you any sort of privilege or or status in the society that you're living in. We see this, of course, in how people in general are more reluctant to identify and be vocal about their faith in circular and social spaces, uh, which is different to how things were in the past. I mean, many years ago, uh, everyone wanted to identify themselves as Christians. People freely considered themselves as Christians. We see it again in how the media portrays people of faith in their TV shows and how Christians are spoken about in social media and other platforms and how prominent Christians in society are portrayed in newspapers and in TV news. Uh, You can see that there is a change in how Christians are perceived. It it is no longer favorable. Much of it is negative. This has meant that Christians who live in such contexts where there is a serious decline of Christianity, I'm thinking particularly in places like Europe where where Christianity is almost non-existent in some some parts, uh, Christians who live in such circumstances are in a precarious position. And therefore, uh, much because of the challenges they face, they've responded in various ways. Uh, some have, re, have responded by resolving to be on the offensive, to, to taking part in the, in the culture war, to be culture warriors, to fight for the cause of Christ in political and cultural spheres. Uh, and the downside of this is that uh, this has led often to the politicization of Christianity as Christians advocate for Christian values in society. Uh, in policies of government and, uh, and, and promoting the way, the Christian way of life in the public spheres. Others have gone not on the offensive, but on the defensive, and are rapidly withdrawing from society as they seek to make a sharp distinction between themselves and the world. They have retreated to their own Christian enclaves. Some have taken their children out of public schooling because of the nature of what public schooling has become. Others have retreated in isolated Christian communities. On the other hand, there are those when seeing the, decline of, uh, the, seeing the decline in the social capital of Christianity and its negative perception in society have capitulated to the surrounding culture. They have embraced worldliness and nominal Christianity that is neither offensive or costly, and some have embraced the form of syncretism where Christianity and worldly philosophy uh, uh, is mixed in order to appease a hostile environment and and, and make Christianity palatable uh, to to the world. Now, the truth is that uh, uh, in one way or other, all of us fall in either one of these categories or a combination of any of these uh, uh, responses, which are by no means exhaustive. Now you must be asking yourself, why am I saying all this by way of introduction? Why am I relating all this? Well, it's because that it's pertinent for us to, to understand how we ought to live in a society that is hostile to our faith. How, how we ought to imagine ourselves and what we need to know in order to strengthen our faith in a place in a society uh, that is hostile to our faith. When we think about persecution and the hostility that is faced by Christians around the world, uh, how are we supposed to understand all of this? How are we supposed to relate to the hostility and the negativity that is uh, around the idea and concept of Christianity? Now, the book of Daniel, particularly this chapter, is there to help us understand these things and to help us think through what it means to be a Christian in the midst of a hostile environment. Daniel 7, as I've read just now, relates to a vision that Daniel saw. Uh, Daniel was a Jewish exile in the land of Babylon, and he had a dream concerning current and future events. Now, there there are four things that I want us to do in relation to this dream. What we're going to uh, examine the content of Daniel's dream. Uh, we're going to try understand its imp- interpretation. We're going to draw out some implications, and then we're going to set out some applications for us. So these are the things that I'm going to do. We're going to examine what Daniel's dream was, understand its interpretation, draw out implications, and then set out uh, some application. But it's important that we set the context because this is a narrative, a historical narrative that we find in the book uh, uh, in the Old Testament. And it it is, of course, the book of Daniel relating to uh, Daniel, the life of Daniel as an exile in the land of Babylon. Uh, Remember, uh, the the, the nation of Judah, which was separated from the kingdom of Israel, was taken into exile into Babylon. A few years prior, it was the nation of Israel that was taken into exile into uh, Assyria. But here we're talking about Daniel, who was uh, a a Jew living in uh, Judah, Jerusalem, taken into exile Uh, into Babylon, and we know, remember, uh, the book of Daniel tells us about Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, In the prior chapters, we have the story of Nebuchadnezzar erecting a a statue, and Daniel's friends refusing to bow down uh, to that statue, and then being put in the fire, and God miraculously rescuing them. Uh, So this is the context of where we are. We're thinking about the life of Daniel, and we read here in chapter 7 that in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, this is after Nebuchadnezzar has passed on and his son has taken on the throne Daniel saw a vision now I don't know about you when i read uh, the the first few verses of this uh, chapter uh, this, is not, this is not a dream. This is not a, a, a wonderful dream. It's more like a nightmare because of the things that Daniel saw. I mean, imagine you're sleeping, you're dreaming, and all you see is beasts with uh, disfigured uh, bodies and, and, and iron tongues and all of that. It must have been a nightmare. So he was justifiably terrified, but he saw uh, this vision lying uh, on his bed. Now, uh, it's important for us to realize that he saw two visions. The, the, there's the first vision that we see from verse 1 till verse 8 of the beast, and then he sees another vision of a great throne that is enacted. So it is two visions that he's seeing, uh, but these two visions tell one story. Uh, they are not disconnected from one another, they are complementary to one another because they are telling one story. In the first vision, we are told that Daniel sees the four winds of heaven stirring up a great sea. Then he sees four beasts coming out of the sea. In the second vision, he sees a throne being placed and the Ancient of Days taking his seat and thousands upon thousands serving him uh, and and books being opened, which is clearly a vision of heaven. So he's seeing a vision of beasts coming out of the sea and then he has a vision of heaven with... uh, Thousands upon thousands serving the one who's seated on the throne. Now, in terms of the first division, Uh, We are told that the first beast that he saw came out of the sea. The four winds were stirring and out of the great sea came out the first uh, beast, uh, which was like a lion, which had wings of an eagle. And we are told that the wings of this lion were plucked out and it was made to stand like a man and was given a mind of a man. Again, this is a very terrifying image. I would not have loved to see what he saw. And then a second beast came out of that same sea, and we are told that it was like a bear which was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth. And we are told, uh, this beast was told, arise and devour much flesh. And then a third beast, we are told, was like a leopard. It had four wings of a bird and had four heads. And the, the passage tells us that dominion was given to this beast. And then finally, we are told of the fourth beast, which uh, we are told is more terrifying and more dreadful and exceedingly strong. And it was different from the other three beasts. Not that the others were not terrifying, but this one was more terrifying and more dreadful than the others. And we are told that it was particularly different from the others in that it had iron teeth, It devoured and broke in pieces. It stamped on what was left ten horns. It had ten horns, but as if this horror scene is not enough, we are told that another horn came up and displaced other three horns, and this horn had eyes and a mouth of a man. Very terrifying. This is really a horror show. Uh, But this is what Daniel uh, saw. And this is the first vision, and this is just a summary of the things that he saw. And then we are told that he had a second vision, because uh, in verse 9 it says, As I looked, thrones were placed. So uh, it's as if his eyes were looking at this particular vision, and then he scanned and looked upwards, and then he saw another vision. And we are told that as he looks, he saw thrones being placed, and the Ancient of Days uh, took his seat. His clothing was white and his hair was like pure wool. His throne was flames with wheels of burning fire uh, and not only that, but a stream of fire came out from uh, before him and a thousand of thousands served him, meaning a million and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, which is like something like a hundred million or a billion. Uh, my math is a bit poor, so I can't tell you how much that is. But but that is clearly a vision of God in heaven because God, as we know from uh, Old Testament passages, identifies himself as the ancient of days and, and the idea of his clothing being white shows the holiness and purity of God. But also not only that, uh, but this is a courtroom scene because we are told that the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. The books were opened. As this is happening we are taken back to the horn that was speaking great things and suddenly we are told that this beast uh, in verse eleven, I looked again because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed. so this beast eventually uh, it was killed um, it was destroyed, burnt with fire, and we are told that the rest of the beasts have their power taken from them from them, but are allowed to live but then we are told that the uh, Then we see another vision and we are told that uh, one like the Son of Man with clouds comes to the Ancient of Days. And we are told that dominion was given to him and peoples and nations to serve him. And we are told that his kingdom will not be destroyed and not to get ahead of myself, but we know that this is the vision of the Son of Man, uh, Jesus Christ. So far, all I've done is rehash what has been told here in the vision, what the text is already saying. And uh, now what we need to do is we need to decipher what all of this means. And we don't have to work very hard because Daniel himself was given the interpretation of this dream. Uh, so what does it mean? Uh, what, what does it mean, uh, all, this, all these things that Daniel saw? Now, in terms of the interpretation of the dream, we are told that the four beasts who came out of the sea are four kings who arise out of the earth. So the kings represent kingdoms. Uh, Kings, of course, practically own kingdoms. And therefore, uh, this is what is in view here. The four kings represent four kingdoms that will be established on the earth. These four beasts that came out of the sea represent kings and kingdoms, uh, and now, the idea of kings and kingdoms is a little unfamiliar to us people who live in the 21st century in autonomous countries that are run by democratically elected presidents as such. Unless, of course, you live in a country like Swaziland, which has the the, the world's last absolute monarch. But but nonetheless, uh, for people like Daniel, kings and kingdoms was their reality in the time that they were living in. So, so Daniel, who is a high-ranking administrator in the kingdom of Babylon, which at, the, which at this point encompasses much of the known world he understands this vision and he understands the interpretation that it is about kingdoms Now, the text itself does not tell us who these kings and kingdoms are, and it's easy for us uh, to speculate. We can think about uh, the Babylonian empire that Daniel is currently living in. We can think about the Assyrian empire that came before the Babylonian empire and was displaced by the Babylonian empire, and then we can think about the Persian empire that displaced the Babylon empire, and then we can go on and go on about various kingdoms of the world, but we're not necessarily told uh, who they are are, but it's clear uh, that these beasts and kingdoms, they will dominate the world, Uh, they are vicious, they are cruel, as we read the descriptions of the beasts themselves, uh, we can see that they are wicked and evil, they are not a pretty sight, so these kingdoms that will come into the world are wicked kingdoms, they will dominate the world and they will do so in a wicked and a cruel manner. Especially the fourth beast and much of the interpretation is mainly on the fourth beast and the horn and we are told that the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that shall rise out of the earth. It will devour the whole earth and trample down and break it into pieces. We are told that the ten horns are ten kings, and that another shall rise after them, which is the little horn with the eyes and the mouth of a man that spoke great things. And this king will displace three other kings. Uh, And about this horn, we are told that it will make war with the saints, uh, which of course mean the people of God, and it will prevail against them. So these kingdoms, these beasts, these kings are a hostile enemy against the people of God. And we are told that this particular one will make war with the saints and will prevail against them. Verse 25 tells us that he will speak great things against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the laws. Now, theologians throughout time have tried to speculate who this particular horn is. And we can speak about uh, many world leaders and dictators uh, uh, who have dominated the world and who have been hostile to the people of God. And I won't go into uh, who they are, but uh, we can think about many of them. And this particular description of the great horn fits many historical figures. We can think of Nero, Hitler, Antichus, Epiphanes, many of them fit this particular uh, description. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we're not too focus on that because the Bible does not tell us who this particular horn is. But it's clear that with, this, with these beasts, these kingdoms, it is clear that Brutal persecution and domination of the people of God will occur. Will occur. So these kingdoms, these beasts who represent kingdoms, show that uh, there will be uh, kingdoms, nations, world powers in the world that are against the people of God. That will dominate, persecute, and oppress them. Now all of this might depress you when you're thinking about this Gory image of the beast and the implications of what it means, but uh, but the vision and its interpretation does not end there. Remember, we are given the vision of the throne and the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Uh, this vision of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man marks the end of the dominion of the four beasts. So, so if you are feeling hopeless after reading that part about the beast, this then should give you hope because ultimately the dominion of those beasts will come to an end. Due to the work of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. Now, as I said earlier, it is clear that the Ancient of Days is God. And the appearance of the throne symbolizes the authority and sovereignty of God. And the fact that uh, this is a courtroom scene and books are opened uh, points us to the idea of judgment. The judgment is made means that God has supreme authority and sovereignty over the kingdoms of the world. Uh, God is sovereign over these beasts. Therefore, he judges them and puts their dominion to an end. He judges the beast, he takes away their power, and he actually kills the fourth beast, the most fierce and ferocious of the beast. He kills that beast and destroys all of them. And then, of course, we see the vision of one like the Son of Man. In the dream itself, uh, the Son of Man is given dominion. He's given glory and the kingdom. And we are told that both the dominion and the kingdom are everlasting and they will not be destroyed. So it is a perpetual kingdom, never ending. And if you know your Bible well, you know that when Jesus walked on earth, he identified himself as the son of man. He appropriated the title to himself, pointing, of course, to what is said here in Daniel chapter seven. And when Jews who've heard Jesus preach and speak and, and, and talk, they would have understood in his uh, identifying himself as, as the Son of Man, as a reference to the book of Daniel, uh, as Jesus began to speak about the kingdom of heaven that is to come. But I want to, you to notice something very interesting with regards to the interpretation. Because in the dream... The kingdom is given to the Son of Man. Read it, says in verse 13, Then I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, they came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away for his kingdom uh, one that shall not be destroyed. So notice that in in the vision that that the kingdom is given to him. But if you look at the interpretation that we are given from verse 15, uh, it shows us that uh, the kingdom is not given to one single figure, but the kingdom is given to the saints of the most high. The text says it about three times so that you don't miss it. In the vision, it's given to the Son of Man, but in the interpretation, it's given to the saints of the Most High. Look at me with verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. In verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And then in verse 27, and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under heaven shall be given to the peoples of the saints of the most high. So you see the difference that in the vision, the kingdom is given to the son of man, but in the interpretation, it's given to the saints of the most high. Well, to help you understand this particular issue, I'd like to put it to you that this is not this is no contradiction, uh, that the one given the interpretation was not contradicting the dream. Rather, we need to realize that everything that the son of man does, he does on behalf of the people of God. So in possessing the kingdom, the son of man who comes as the Lord Jesus Christ, everything he does in his ministry, in his life, in taking dominion, in defeating the enemies of God, he does for the people of God. So even as he possesses the kingdom, It is the same as us possessing the kingdom. Hence, in the interpretation, it is the saints who receive the kingdom. Why? They receive it because of the work of the Son of Man. Everything that Jesus does as the Son of Man, as Savior, as Lord, he does it. On behalf of the people of God. So uh, Jesus' life and death on the cross was on behalf of the people of God. His eventual resurrection and ascension to the right hand of majesty is on behalf of the people of God. That's why Paul can tell us that that we must fix our eyes uh, above where Jesus is seated. And we are seated with him on the right hand of the Father. All that Jesus does for his people Even when he assumes kingship and ownership of the universe, he does it for the people of God. And the text tells us that the kingdom that he shall possess and receive is everlasting. It will not be destroyed. He shall reign forever. It will know no end. Now you must be... uh, a little bit flabbergasted about all these things I've said, and you'll be wondering then, what is the implication for, for us? What, what are we supposed to take away from this vision and this interpretation that Daniel saw? Uh, the, there are four things that i like to bring out, and I will try to be brief. Uh, that uh, when we read a passage like this, and we read about the kingdoms and uh, the kings and the beasts... Uh, we need to realize something. And the first implication of all, of all of this, which is important for us, is that we need to realize that the kingdoms of the world are hostile to God and the people of God. And that is the reality that all of us have to come to bear with. That all the kingdoms of the world, the souls of the world, are hostile to God and the people of God. They are not friendly to us. The picture that we get from the dream, the beasts devour and kill, the fourth beast prevails over the people of God. And and this may manifest in different ways uh, through the persecution of the church, through the general disposition and hostility of everything that is of Christ, uh, which tells us that the world is not neutral. Because sometimes, even as Christians, as we have our, live our lives day to day, as we acclimatize ourselves to society, we can sometimes imagine that the world is neutral. That the world is, you know, uh, you know not, they are neutral. They, they, they are not against us. But the reality of the matter is that all the kingdoms of the world, from the time of the fall till now, are hostile to God and the people of God. Therefore, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John that the world will hate you. If the world hates me, it will hate you. So we shouldn't be surprised at all at the hostility that Christians face, especially now day and age when we hold uh, views and convictions that are out of stream from what the general society holds, whether it's issues of gay rights and LGBT rights, where there's issues relating to uh, to marriage and, and, and sexuality, where it's issues relating to how a government ought to operate in the world. We shouldn't be surprised if there's hostility against us. When governments enact laws that oppose all that is God, when they try to regulate and suppress Christian churches, I mean we have not seen that to such an extent here in South Africa but in many other parts of the world uh, there is a real clamp down on churches in places like China uh, and other places of the world but but when we see these things when we see that the general mood change in society against Christianity we shouldn't be surprised because what Daniel tells us is that the kingdoms of the world are hostile to God and they hate God and not only do they hate God they hate the people of God. That's the first implication. The second implication that we need to understand and realize is that as much as this is true, the kingdoms of the world are transient, uh, meaning that they are not permanent, meaning that they are a passing phase. Because if you realize, we are told that all of these beasts are judged by God. And God puts an end to their dominion. In fact, one of the beasts, the most terrifying of all of them, we are told that it is killed and burned with fire. So as much as we have this hostility from the kingdoms of the world, uh, from the nations and the powers of the world, we need to realize that none of it is permanent. It is temporary. They are transient. They are passing through. As much as the kingdoms of the world may exercise power of the church, over the church, may oppress the church, but the kingdoms of the world have an expiry date. Because we are told that the books will be opened and judgment will be made where real power is. At the throne of the most high God who is sovereign over all. Their time will end. God destroys the beast and he neutralizes the rest. He renders them powerless. God will judge the world. And that is the image that we get here in Daniel, even as we uh, uh, read earlier in the book of of Revelations. If you read the book of Revelation, uh, you will hear that God will judge the world. And the reign of terror of the beasts that are hostile to God and his people will come to an end, will come to an end. It will not be forever. And then a third implication is that the Son of Man overcomes on behalf of the people of God, and which is a point that I made earlier, that everything that the Son of Man does and, and, and accomplishes, he does on behalf of the people of God. Jesus assumes control of the, of, of the world on behalf of, Of the people of God. And he overcomes the kingdoms of the world. He overcomes the enemies of God. For our sake. And he did that of course. Through the cross. By humbling himself. And taking on a human body. By living a life that we could not live. By taking upon himself our sins. And nailing them on the cross. Jesus Christ overcame the world. On our behalf. Remember, he says that in the Gospel of John. He says, take heart, I have overcome. I have overcome the world. And he does it for our sake. Therefore, we can trust in him and we can put our hope in him, even in the midst of a hostile situation, because the one who is for us is one who has conquered and overcome. So Jesus Christ overcomes on behalf of the people of God. And then lastly, the last implication of this passage is that the kingdom of God, unlike the kingdoms of the world, the kingdom of God has permanence. Because we read that the son of man was given an everlasting kingdom and it will not be taken away from him. The people of God will possess a kingdom forever. The kingdom that belongs to the saints of God is an everlasting kingdom. It has permanence. In other words, it it will not fade in power. It will not fade into obscurity. It will remain forever. The kingdoms of the world have a short lifespan, but the kingdom of God is forever. And that should encourage us because if we are Christians today, we are part of a kingdom that will never fade. That will never be defeated. That will never be taken for us. It will be an eternal possession for all of us. And that ought to encourage us, especially in the midst of a world that is hostile to our faith, that is hostile to Christianity. uh, We need to remind ourselves again and again uh, that what we have as the people of God is more important is more complete, is more full, and is forever. Unlike the things of the world. The things of the world are passing away. They are transient. Everything that we see that is of this world, the nature of things, how they are, the system of the world, all of it will be wrapped up as if it is a scroll. And God will present to us an everlasting kingdom an everlasting kingdom. So what does this mean for all of us? I've given us the implications. Now uh, it's time for application. What does this mean for us? Uh, because now, I mean, as we look at our society, as we look at the world, we might not see in the sense, we might still be in a comfortable position because uh, there is not much hostility of christianity in south africa but, but it is coming uh, so how are we to how should we then live how should we then think about these things first we need to have we need to have a robust a robust and radical faithfulness to jesus christ that if we are to live in a hostile world that hates God and hates His people, uh, then uh, we ought to have uh, a radical faithfulness to the person of Christ. Because things will become difficult as soon as we lose our social capital, where it is not nice anymore to be a Christian. Where being a Christian might mean you losing a promotion, you losing income, you losing a job. Uh, Therefore, in, in, in circumstances like that, we need to be consistently and radically faithful to Jesus Christ and our faith. Because that is the only thing that will make us strong and firm in the day of persecution, in the day of difficulty. Trust and faithfulness to Christ, holding on to Christ, believing the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, clinging to the faithfulness of Christ. Because the world can take away many things, but if you have Christ, you have everything. So this is the implication of all of this, that as soon as we see the tide turning against us in society... Where people do not want to associate us because uh, of our views, uh, because we are trying to be faithful to to God and the Scriptures, uh, then we need to hold more tightly to Christ. We need to have a radical faithfulness. And then, secondly, we need to have a robust theology of suffering. We need to understand what suffering is. And I know it's kind of difficult to speak to 21st century people about suffering because uh, we, are, we are the microwave generation. Everything is easy for us. It comes easy. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you don't have to work hard for many things. Uh, you can even do your banking over a cell phone. Uh, that's how easy life has become for us. So it's difficult to talk about suffering. But if you read this passage, you realize uh, that the enemies of God will prevail for a season against the people of God. Remember what it said uh, about, that, uh, the, about the fourth beast? That he will prevail against the people of God. Uh, that, that, he will, uh, that, that the beast will trample against the people of God that will persecute the people of God. So we need to have a robust theology of suffering. We need to know uh, that suffering is the bread of the children of God. It is not something that is foreign to how God operates for the people of God. And we need to be able to suffer for Christ. Because sooner or later there are many things that we're going to lose simply by associating ourselves with the person of Christ. Suffering uh, is the bread of the children. Uh, It is something that Christians need to be intimately uh, aware of. Mm -hmm. That they will not escape suffering in the world. uh, Because that's what we are told in the books like the book of the Philippians. that, 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 That as much as we believe on Christ, we need to suffer for him. For the sake of the gospel. It might be easy now, but days are coming when suffering will knock on your door. So we need to have a radical faithfulness and we need to have a theology of suffering. I mean, if you read the New Testament again and again, the believers were encumbered uh, by suffering. I mean, they were not like us. I mean, uh, in the early days of the church, they were a minority religion. They were insignificant in the eyes of the society that they were living in. And many times, if you read in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, they were persecuted. That was their reality, and soon it might be our reality. So we need to get into grips with that idea. And then lastly, the third application is that not only should we have a radical faithfulness and a robust theology of suffering, we need to have a robust Theology of joy. We need to have a robust theology of joy. We need to be a joyous people. Because the suffering that we will experience in the world is only a temporary suffering. It is not an eternal suffering. But the joy that we receive as the people of God is an eternal joy that far supersedes the suffering that we might experience in the here and now. in the here and now. Isn't that what Paul says in the book of Romans 8? For consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing the glory that is to be revealed in us. So we need to have a robust theology of of joy. Secondly, because Christ has overcome on our behalf, So our enemies that persecute us, that harass us, that are hostile to us, have already been defeated by Christ. They are toothless beasts because Christ has overcome on our behalf. And the Bible tells us that we are already more than conquerors in Christ. Therefore, that ought to give us joy even in the midst of hostility. We need to have a robust theology of joy. And lastly, because we are are possessors of an eternal kingdom. We are possessors of an eternal kingdom. So that should give you joy as a believer that you are a possessor of the eternal kingdom. It's written here in the book of 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. You have an inheritance that is eternal, kept in heaven for you. You are a co-heir with Christ and that ought to give you immeasurable joy even in the midst of a hostile society. If I could give you some homework, if you can uh, read a few passages in the New Testament, you'll notice a particular theme that runs through the New Testament in that uh, many passages where suffering is mentioned, joy is not far behind joy is not far behind in many passages where suffering is mentioned uh, joy is not behind I look at this passage i just read in 1 peter chapter 1 it says if uh, in this you rejoice though for now a little while if necessary you have been grieved by many trials rejoice even though we have been grieved by Many trials, And then he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And he's pe- speaking to people who are experiencing trials. And this is a thread in many passages of scripture that wherever you read about suffering, joy is not far behind. Therefore, as Christians we need to have a robust theology of joy because of what Christ has accomplished for us. That even when people are hostile to us and hate us, they will see our faithfulness to Christ. They will see our long-suffering and endurance against suffering, but most importantly, they will see the joy that we have as a people and community of God because of what Christ has achieved for us. The world may hate us, but Christ has overcome. The world might reject us, but Christ has overcome. So believer, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Remember what he has done and accomplished for you. That even in a place where our influence as a church is declining and people do not want to associate with us, remember what Christ has achieved for you and I. And let that help you stand in the day of difficulty. Let us pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word and for your reminder about what it means to live in a society that is hostile. Father, we know that we cannot do all these things without your help and your strength and your grace. So, Father, we pray that you might help us to remain firm and to continue to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, to continue to follow him even when the world is against us and hates us. Help us, Lord, to understand what it means for us to suffer for Christ and with Christ. And help us, Lord, have joy even in the midst of difficulty. Help us be a people that is marked by joy because we are possessors of an eternal kingdom. Because we know that Christ has overcome on our behalf and therefore we are more than conquerors. Because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Father, we thank you for your grace, and I pray for this church, pray for the pastor that you continue to strengthen them, continue to bless them and give them grace for their witness in this area. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.